is the Homestead Education Podcast, where we talk all things homesteading, and we want to share our passion and experience for this lifestyle with you. Hello, hello, and welcome back to this episode of Homestead Education. Thank you for joining us on our podcast today. It is Mandy, of course, here with Angela. And today we decided we were going to really kind of get into an episode about food crafting. And really what we mean by that is we're talking about all these things that you can do on your homestead, grow on your homestead, you know, raising animals and the byproducts that you get from them and and so on and so forth. But what do you do with all of it? And um, that's important. And I think it's important to know that there are so many options and we're going to go through them. Everything from, gosh, sourdough to the butter making, the fire cider, very timely. with that, with the time of the year. So, hey, Ann, how are you? Good. How are you? Doing great. Good. Um, yeah, this is exciting. I think that this is going to be really helpful, uh, good, actually, even refresher for for us. And I, I hope it shows folks or, you know, folks here and understand that there are so many different ways that when you choose this lifestyle or you know you kind of choose this route of of living that for example canning right I know we're going to get into it in, in a little bit more detail but that's scary to some people it's scary to some people when they're starting out and there's there are other ways to preserve your food so I I am excited to share that with with everybody totally I think there's different ways of food preservation there's sort of different badges, if you will. Homesteaders like to accumulate, you know, like, oh, now I know how to make my own bread. Oh, I've made kombucha. We're going to talk about those things. Um, But the reason we wanted to bring this sort of general overview of all of the different things you can create in your kitchen into season one is because this is a great place to start if you're not at your dream homestead yet. Maybe you don't have land. Maybe you don't have the ability to have a garden. You can still do food crafting in your kitchen space, wherever you are in a high rise New York city apartment with items you sourced at the grocery store, farmers markets, CSAs. So this is a great place to teach yourself sort of food preservation skills, maybe some self-reliance on, you know, if you want to switch to making your own bread and we're just going to cover all of the different things you may not even know that you can do in your home. Yes. Yeah. I think we just jump right into it and talk about bread. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I baked bread this morning. I think that it's, uh, uh, it is, um, like you kind of said about the, the badges and things like that. I think mm-hmm. um, making bread and then, you know, kind of stepping up to even sourdough and things like that. We talk about all of these things that you can do and that we do and that we've learned and, and grown throughout the years. And sure, it's definitely easier. You can go to the store, but I'll circle back to just like the pride thing. And, um, mm-hmm. sourdough bread is that for me. Um, it, it is absolutely, uh, tastes better and it is so fun. And it's, it's like such an experiment. Um, everything about this lifestyle gardening and all that is just, it's a big old experiment. So when did you, I think you started making bread long before me. I think I did. Yeah. Um, Zach Breadron, my sourdough starter, is about five or six years old. Uh, you, I mean, if you know pop culture at all, you can probably figure out who I named that after uh, because I love it. I take care of it and it's a living organism in my kitchen. So 
Yes, I have uh, a sourdough starter I inherited from a friend. And at this point, it's considered a long life starter. It is so aged and it has accumulated wild yeast from the years, um, which just helps to enhance the flavor, the strength. Um, so it's pretty cool to have this organism. I think, I think sourdough is intimidating because people hear about feeding it and they think that they have to commit to something along the lines of another you know, animal and you you have to feed it twice a day. It needs water. It's really not that rigid. Um, The more you bake with it, the more you feed it. And what we mean by feeding it is you are taking a bit of starter that you've either started yourself or purchased at a retailer and you have to keep the yeast bacteria in there alive. And to do that, you need to give it water and flour. And there are different theories and thought processes on how often to do that, how much to feed it. And that's a different episode. And we'll talk about that in depth later. But we're bringing this up because it is something that is approachable. It's not scary. And just like anything else with homesteading, there's just, there's a level of learning and experimentation. Yeah. And I think the the idea, you know, that we see around sourdough or kind of, you know, the, the, the highlight of, of sourdough for us at least, or why we started baking sourdough over more of like a traditional just sandwich bread is, is how easily digestible it is for you. It's a little bit more healthy, I guess, quote unquote, when you talk about a version of bread, um, you can kind of switch out and you can do this with regular bread as well, you know, for folks that have gluten intolerance and all of that. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's, it's a learning curve and it's not scary. I mean, what you need to start sourdough in your kitchen, you don't have to live, you know, again on a prairie and and have an apron on and you can do this anywhere. Absolutely. I mean, you Um, could rock an apron and a bonnet if you really want to. Yes, you could absolutely do that. I know all of you could do it. Yeah. More power to you. Um, but you can source starter from so many people, you know, get a friend, Angela sent me some of hers. I have some that I started myself. And then like you, Angela, my old, um, neighbor, uh, has some, or brought some over to us. And so I actually keep three different strains going. And mm-hmm. like you said, when you keep baking with it, it just, the wild yeast just kind of explodes. But so you need a starter, you need a glass jar, like a mason jar or whatever, something like that a scale because you're going to be measuring these things out and or like, you know, measuring tools, anything that you would probably already have in your kitchen. Um, some bowls, cool. A spoon. Great. Uh, nothing fancy. (laughs) And, um, you obviously need flour and water, um, to go with your starter. And then you need something to bake it in like a Dutch oven. You can get so fancy and you don't have to get fancy with all of these things that we talk about. There's not a right or wrong way to do it. Uh, I think that's the beauty of it. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's been a journey. It's been so fun. I love, I teach, I taught my mom how to to bake bread the other day and, you know, now she doesn't have to rely on me. And so it's, it's so cool. It opens up a lot of doors, you know, not just the ability to have bread whenever you want it, but I mean, it's, it's addictive. You start making pizza crust. You, you, Mandy, you've made brownies. Um, we do ciabatta rolls, hamburger, hot dog buns. I mean, really, you can cook anything and everything. Pancakes. Um, when you work with sourdough, and again, we'll talk about this later, but you do something when you feed, you have to discard some of it or, or get rid of it. But you can make use of that. And there's all kinds of recipes out there for 
sourdough discard pancakes. So it keeps you baking if you want it to. You can store it in the refrigerator. Um, if you're interested in learning more, we're going to include a list of research, uh, resources in the show notes. And we've got books. We've got links to some Instagram content, online classes. So take a look at the show notes for every facet that we cover here. We're going to leave you with some resources. Um, the thing is, some folks might not be ready to jump into sourdough. It's just too intimidating. Can't do it. Uh, maybe they'll want to make their own starter and they're having a hard time sourcing it. You can make yeast-based breads. There's no problem. Um, there's nothing wrong with doing that. You just pick up a packet of yeast, jar of yeast at the grocery store, get it online. Um, but if you remember when we recently had COVID, sourcing yeast was nearly impossible. And that's what brought a lot of people to sourdough is because they could start their own starter in their kitchen and really sort of take advantage of yeast that's already in the atmosphere. But I mean, regular bread, that's just bread that's leavened with yeast instead of a starter. You can get that at the market, you can get it online, and then you just add basic ingredients, most often usually water, flour, uh, salt, oil. I mean, there's that's a bazillion it. recipes yeah. out there. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a really good point, and I know that we're going to keep trucking along, but with the pandemic and the yeast shortage, it is, I think that the whole idea and, you know, why we live this sometimes very intricate lifestyle, challenging, you know, it's easy some days and what have you lifestyle because of things like that. Um, mm -hmm. it's being able to, Oh no, I'm in a pickle. And, um, but wait, I know how to do this myself or, Oh, I, you know, I have a resource and I'm going to figure out how to do it. And, um, you know, another why, and this just goes without standing for everything that we're going to talk about and that we probably previously have talked about and, you know, futuristically will, um, you know, going to the store and, and things like that. I, it's great. Um, and not, not knocking it, we do it as well, but you just don't know necessarily where those things are sourced from. And I think that if you can kind of eliminate that, you know, link and uh, you know, it's just kind of better for you, maybe better for the environment. And, and we won't get into, you know, too much nitty gritty there, but when we talk about living organisms, we talked about sourdough, another, um, a big kind of, fad if you will but long time like it's like coming back around it's very cyclic like it's been around for so long and now we see so many people bringing it back to you know their kitchens their modern day kitchens kombucha and yeah. um i think for the the main reason of health benefits honestly mm -hmm. yeah i think so it's interesting if you're unfamiliar with kombucha um it's this idea where you're fermenting um using something called a mother or a SCOBY, which stands for symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. And just like a starter, it's the same kind of idea. You're feeding it, except you're not using flour and water, you're using sugar and water. And this mother, which, I mean, to paint a picture for you over the airwaves here, looks like a fattened up piece of bologna and it feeds on <laughs> the sugar. And every single time you make a batch of kombucha, that SCOBY grows and it adds a layer. Um, just like with sourdough and starter, you can continuously, as long as you're feeding, be baking with a kombucha SCOBY, or you know, if you want to call it a mother or a starter, every time you, you make a batch with it, you're getting that layer, you're going to be continuously 
uh, having a viable SCOBY in your kitchen. You can break it up. You can share it with friends. You can sell them. Why make your own if you can get it so easily at the grocery store? Well, because you're removing one product packaging. Mandy talked about that before with bread. Kombucha is pricey. Um, if you get a bottle at the store, it's like four or five bucks for a small ish bottle. Um, you can make your own for so much less. And then you just have control over what's going in it as far as additive and preservatives and flavor. If you really just want a straight up strawberry kombucha, that's kind of hard to find. I mean, there are all these mixed tea flavors. You can control what is going into it, which is pretty cool. And it's just another way to use your own or local produce and herbs. Um, when it comes to fermented items and we'll, we'll touch on fermenting more in a little bit here, you really need something that's non-reactive to contain these items in most often it's ceramic or glass. You don't really want to use metal. Um, we're looking at wooden spoons. Obviously you need your SCOBY, you need your sugar, and then you just need glass bottles that you're going to pour it off in. I think though, maybe something we should touch on real quick is sanitation with any of these items. You got to have a clean kitchen. This isn't something that you come in from cleaning the kitchen coop and immerse those eggy poopy hands into your bread dough or into your kombucha product. There's a level of responsibility that comes with all of this, not just because you're going to get sick, but I mean, it's just going to affect your final product, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that goes without saying, but I think it's even more crucial because when we talk about sourdough and kombucha, I mean, when you said it, it's a living organism. Like it's, it is, that yeast is alive and um, that's why it's so good for your gut. That's why it's so good for your digestive health. And, you know, the main real reason why a lot of folks are are getting into this, but yes, absolutely. You know, sanitation is key. Um, And you touched on, you know, what you need. Um, we, uh, don't actually have a SCOBY right now, but we did for, for many years and it is, um, I will say an acquired taste. Yeah. However, um, you know, it's kind of just like knowing, knowing the benefits for your body. And again, it is a prideful thing to be like, Hey, look at this. This is so awesome. You go to the store and you see it. And like you said, it's pricey. You're like, no, I can do this in my own kitchen. Um, and I, that, that is the ticket. Mm-hmm. Totally. I know. So moving on, I think yeah. mm-hmm. to, I don't know, do you want to switch to talking about kind of like dairy and all of those things? Or do you want to kind of dive into more of probably what folks are going to do next in regards to, Hey, you have a garden and the, the many ways that you can preserve, you know, your beans, tomatoes, peppers, all of that. Sure. Let's go into sort of those food preservation ideas because that brings us Back to fermenting and pickling. We've been talking about fermenting a bit already with the kombucha and the sourdough. Let's let's jump down there. Sure. So, I mean, we said it in the very beginning of the episode, and there are so many, you know, uh, ways ways to do this. I think you know the main um, the main thing that you hear or the ways is canning. Um, you know, pressure canning or, or water bath canning. There there's some different verbiage, different ways there. And for, you know, people, it's scary. It was scary for me for a lot. I think that you just actually started to do it. And (laughs) right. It is, it is a little bit um, scary because you get into, you know, the preservation of all, you know, the materials actually in there, you have to do it correctly. Otherwise it's unsafe to eat. Right. And so when you Mm -hmm. get into all that, you want to make sure that, that you're doing it right for you and your family, but you don't have to do that. Right. You can dehydrate. 
You can. Um, you can freeze. We do a lot of freezing, a lot of freezing, blanching and freezing with the, with a lot of our vegetables. You want to um, touch on what blanching is real quick? Again, this is in oh, the show notes, yeah. but let's, let's touch on blanching and why we need to do that. Why does that coexist with freezing? I mean, so uh, basic blanching is basically when you are cooking something in boiling water. So, for example, I'm, I'm thinking of what we blanched this past year, um, broccoli. Um, so we freeze broccoli, like those florets. So I'll pick them when they're kind of young. Um, and you are blanching. So you're putting your, your, your food, your product, so broccoli in boiling water for a very short period of time. Like we do maybe two to three minutes. And then right after that, you're plunging it into an ice bath. So, you know, bowl or your, your sink or whatever. Um, and the reason it, it kind of like preserves it in that like crunchy stage. If you are just taking your broccoli and you, um, stick it right in the freezer, when you, um, we thought it's just going to be like mush. Um, and you kind of lose the nutrients as well. So blanching is key for a lot of things, you know, beans and, and things like that. We, when we freeze tomatoes, we don't blanch those, but you know, story for another day, but that's kind of the nitty gritty of blanching. I don't, I don't do it any kind of fancy way. We don't have a blanching basket or anything like that. I just use, I just use boiling water and stick it in the sink with ice. Same thing. Yeah. Blanching times, they vary, like Mandy said, based on what exactly you're yeah. preserving or freezing. Um, but if you think about like, if you let's stick with the broccoli, if you were to pick or harvest broccoli, it's going to start breaking down in theory, the moment you harvest it. Right. So that's why we try to use fresh produce as soon as possible. We can sort of slow, we can't completely stop, but we can slow those enzymes that are breaking down um, the color, the, the texture, the crunch level. We can slow those if we blanch it and then freeze it. Like Mandy said, if you just put something in the freezer, not only are you know potentially harboring bacteria that could just suspend itself in the freezer, but um, you're going to help preserve the crunch factor, the nutrients, and the color and just general appearance, the taste too, mm -hmm. um, if you blanch it first. Um, and then, yeah, you just put it on a single ba layer baking sheet that way too, when you flash freeze it that way, just suspend it in a single layer for a second, rather than throw it all in a freezer bag. I mean, if you've ever just done that, you know, it comes out in like one huge heap of ice yeah. and then it's like hard to measure out. So just do yourself a favor. But again, in the show notes, um, freezing is great because it's sort of, it, it's a, an approachable, accessible skill. Anyone can do it. All you need is a pot of water and a pan. And a, and a freezer bag or a freezer yeah. container. They pop it in and you're done. Um, dehydrating is something that's a good alternative. It's not scary. It's it's not something that I think people are intimidated by, like canning. And you don't even need a real dehydrator. You can just use your oven on the lowest setting. Um, but that's a great way to store things without having to rely on a freezer. If your power goes out, you know, that's sort of the great thing about canning is that you don't have to worry about temperature control, but dehydrating is that way too. You know, if your, if your freezer goes out, no big deal. You've got things in jars on a shelf in the pantry that were dehydrated. I, I, I mean, did you want to touch on that real quick at all before we jump into some of the canning differences? No, I mean, I think it's just, I mean, right. Dehydrating is removing moisture. So it's that, it, like you said, you can do it in your oven. You can do it in a dehydrator. We dehydrate and or freeze most things just because of, you know, space and um, ease, I guess, time. It's very, 
when you're in the like peak of harvest and you pull out all of these onions or you pull out all these peppers or, you know, whatever it, it's easier for me to cut them up, blanch them and throw them in the freezer or throw them in the dehydrator. And then you go outside for the rest of the day. So no, I mean, I think it's just knowing that there are other options and we will dehydrate, you know, herbs, for example, and then have a whole jar of them for the whole year. Um, and I promise you all that when you do that and you take that time and then you cook with it in the dead of winter, it not only tastes better, you can tell. Um, but again, we go back to that pride thing. So canning. Um, you don't can, right? So not on a regular. Um, it is yeah. definitely um, more of like a, a goal. We will can like tomatoes, um, you know, sauces, things like that, that, you know, that you're going to have, you know, um, on, I think it probably will change when we have children. Um, yeah. but we don't do, you know, the major canning of uh, fruits and, and things like that. I know some people that is like their major way of putting up food and more power to you. It does take a lot of time. It does take a lot of practice. It and, does, um, you know, storage space, really. I mean, if we're being totally practical, you have to have a lot of space to store this stuff. Uh, you, you probably, well, you canned this past year, right? Canning is, is definitely my go-to source of preservation now. Um, I've been water bath canning for years, which I mean, that took a lot of sort of getting used to and you develop a comfort level like you do with anything else on a homestead. Uh, but just this last year, I started pressure canning. Um, the reason I was freaked out, I think the reason a lot of people are freaked out is because you envisioned that with pressure, you expose yourself to an explosion in your kitchen. No. But if you have quality new uh, machinery that you're working with and you read your manual, because that's what it's there for. Um, that eliminates some of the fear. I watch a lot of YouTube videos. I don't know a lot of people that pressure can those that I do know on Instagram, I contacted, but I mean, it's just research and, and unfortunately experimentation. Right. Um, here's why I water bath can. It just seemed like a more approachable way to preserve some of those things like tomato sauce. And I was, I do successfully can enough tomato sauce to eliminate the need to get it at a grocery store, which is cool for us. I mean, we're Italian family. We eat a lot of pasta sauce, pizza sauce. So tomato products are big. And that was something that for me was a personal goal and I felt empowered by. Um, But water bath canning, even steam canning is really for high acid foods. When you have low acid foods, things that aren't naturally shelf stable, you need to raise the heat high enough and remove enough oxygen that you can make it shelf stable and safe. And the only option for doing that is pressure canning. Low yep. acid foods, broth, meat, you have to pressure can those. Otherwise, your options are freezing, dehydrating. Um, for me, I really wanted to make my own vegetable stock and have it be shelf stable and not rely on the freezer. And that's why specifically I got into pressure canning this last year. I didn't have an explosion. Not yet. Yeah. Well, that's good. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> um, I'm very proud of you. And Thank I you. I think it's important that, that we should note, I mean, when we talk about the, the two previous preservation methods, dehydrating and freezing, there are a lot of um, variables that you can kind of, you know, 
go on a whim and do it, you know, your kind of way, you know, Blanche for three minutes, maybe Blanche for five minutes, probably all going to be the same, no big deal. You know, you can dehydrate in different ways, but with canning, there isn't a lot of wiggle room. Um, and I think that kind of goes back to the fear factor for some people there. You have to really follow a proven method. Um, for one, that way it seals and it cans appropriately, you know, so your efforts aren't completely lost. Um, but so that you are actually removing and killing that bacteria and that so it's, it's shelf stable. You can't just like make up your own recipe for canning your tomato mm-hmm. sauce. You have to actually follow because, uh, right. It's, it's science. It's not just like figuring it out on your own. Um, there is a, a true try and true method, um, to these things. So that's just really important to note. And I think, again, it goes back to the fear factor, but it doesn't have to be scary. Look, Angela did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, my family, I mean, I've been having canned tomato sauce for, like I said, about five years now with water bath canning. Nobody's gotten botulism, which is the big, the B word, right? Everybody freaks out about. Um, Mandy hit it on the head. It's not cooking creatively. This is science. Yeah. If nothing else, go get the ball canning book, which I link to in the show notes. Those are tried and true recipes. They've been tested in labs to ensure that the pH balance is where it needs to be in order to make it safe for you to consume. So yep. just get beat that into your head if you have to. Yep. This is science. Yeah. Absolutely. Another way that we um, can kind of touch on pickling, right? So it's totally. kind of, you're using uh, some of the same materials as, as canning. Um, you know, a lot of people want to put away um, pickles. And so you can do things like refrigerator pickles, very easy, um, recipe. You can pickle so many things. I think a lot of it's, it's becoming more of a, um, again, I'm going to use the word fad, but it's becoming more popular. I, I think it maybe used to be very popular and it's kind of coming back as a way to preserve a lot of things, carrots, beans. I mean, if you have never tried pickled green beans, you're in for a treat. My friend. Oh, uh, beans. I know. And it's things that you maybe wouldn't think um, with pickling. You can experiment. Absolutely. See Mm -hmm. what it would taste like. 200%. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's a little bit easier. So I think the fear factor is kind of removed. So basically when you pickle, you're just like making a brine. Um, You can kind of do so many different things in your brine, make it. And that's going to, that's going to be what gives your, your vegetables the flavor. Um, and then but I think real quick, sorry to interrupt Bambi, but it is worth noting that this goes two ways. There's refrigerator pickling recipes and there's canning pickling recipes. Yes. You can't do uh, a refrigerator pickle recipe and can that and put it on the shelf and call it good. Yep. Make sure you're following the appropriate recipe for where you intend to store shelf or refrigerator wise. Yep, absolutely. I mean, your refrigerator recipes for all these things, most of them you'll be able to find, you know, kind of anywhere, ask a friend. Um, They can be uh, altered, if you will, for refrigerator versus canning. And, you know, your main difference is obviously your shelf life. So in a pinch, if you don't have a lot of time to can, do refrigerator pickling. Um, Those things are going to last for at least a month or two. And trust me, they're not actually going to last that long because you're going to eat them. But it is a really good way to just, you know, if you have massive amounts of beans that you're harvesting, massive amounts of cucumbers, um, carrots, uh, beets, 
your radishes, all of those things. A lot of times when they are ready to be harvested in the garden, they're all ready at once, you know, or we succession plant and, you know, you have a a few weeks in between two major harvests Mm -hmm. and, um, it's a really good way to put stuff up that is, you know, you're still going to be able to eat it through the summer and it doesn't go to waste. You don't have to figure out what to do with it right that very second. Do you ferment? Other than sourdough and kombucha, have you fermented? No. no. Um, uh, I've tried and I suck at it. Here's why. I want to get good at it, but I have, yeah, no. Uh, Sean, my husband, is a deli pickle snob, okay? He won't get deli pickles at the store. He will only get them from the occasional deli where he feels they pass his taste test, whatever that is. And I thought being a homesteader. Okay. I'm going to learn to ferment deli pickles. Um, I'm going to tell you something. They turned, they turned orange and they smelled like feet. And here's why I did not get the proper weights. I didn't get weights period. And so they ended up, even though they were below the, the, we'll call it a brine, whatever line. Um, it harbored bacteria and mold started to grow. You have to have a fermenting kit. Nanny's being smart about it and she's doing it the right way. Um, you got to use weights and you got to submerge it. But I mean, I guess beyond the deli pickle, why would someone ferment? It's health reasons, right? Yeah. It goes back to everything. I mean, it's kind of just like that beneficial bacteria we talked about with, you know, sourdough versus just traditional store-bought bread or kombucha. I mean, it's just like good for your gut. Um, and that's where it's at. So yeah, health benefits all around, um, new way to kind of preserve the harvest. I think it'll be something that we might try and tackle this, this next year. Um, cause we haven't really, you know, dove into that too much. Are krauts and kimchi, are those fermented or are those pickled? I, I consider them to be fermented. I think that you can pickle some krauts, but I think that most Mm -hmm. folks will, um, ferment the cabbage to make, to make an actual kraut. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, gosh. You want to talk dairy? Yes. Let's jump up, um, or back to, to dairy. Um, this is timely. Very timely, very timely, and you know, kind of a a, a big subject. Um, but a lot of folks consume a lot of dairy and in a lot of different ways or variations of it. Um, and um, I don't know. I think that most people think of cows. We can kind of touch on obviously, you know, goats and sheep. We started with dairy goats. Now we're bringing home a dairy cow today. Uh, Today, Today. we're recording this episode. Today. That's why it's timely. I know. So it is just kind of, you know, amping it up. And we do drink a lot of milk and make a lot of products from our goat's milk and things like that. So I think it's a a different level when you think about homesteading and stuff like that. But you don't have to, like you said in the very beginning, you don't have to have a cow. You don't have to have a goat. You can source these things. You can make your own butter. You can do all of these things. and gosh, kind of for us, you know, back to the why is really just being connected with your food and knowing where it's coming from and, um, you know, removing that link from the grocery store and, and things like that is, is really my why of why so many whys, but that we chose this route and that we do it and that we get up and we milk an animal every day and, and things like that. 
Um, well, you're becoming secure beyond yes. the garden, Absolutely. beyond the produce. You know, we, we talked, um, we, we did a poultry episode. I'm not sure if you listened to that in order of when these, these episodes are appearing on your podcast player. Uh, but we talked a lot of people introduce poultry after gardening because it's, it's sort of the gateway into en- enlarging your self-reliance self-reliant food system, right? Like you, you grow your own veg and then you're like, what else can I do? And so you think, well, I can do eggs, dairy, whether that be from, you know, sheep, goat, cow is sort of the natural progression of that. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to do all the things you don't have to make all the butter, all the ice cream, all the yogurt. I mean, you could just do it for cheese. Um, I did take a cheese making class a couple of years ago. And it was probably one of the craziest, most interesting experiences I've ever had because I went to a Pennsylvania farm. I got up super early. The class started at 7 a.m. And it was no joke. The class was taught by this old time farmer in the barn laundry room. And the class took place on top of the washer and dryer. She had her big pots and her curding supply. You know, there was like, it was crazy, but it was also some of the best mozzarella I've ever tasted. Um, there's something to be said for crafting something dairy-wise in your kitchen. And, Absolutely. right, it's just like anything else. You know, and it is just, like, so full circle. Um, I mean, we talk about, you know, removing the link and all of those types of things and doing yourself. And it is very intricate and it seems very daunting. Um, but it is it is just in such a connection back to all the things that you're sourcing. I don't know. It, it, that is the main reason when we talk about homesteading in in general, it's just getting back to those, those roots. If I'm going to do it anyway, I want to just do it myself. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's not always feasible. And like you said, you don't have to do all the things and, and you know, whatnot, but um, that self-reliance, it, it's becoming wickedly popular and I'm definitely going to keep, can, you know, keep down that path. Yeah. Yeah. More badges, more badges, more badges, more badges. I mean, and you don't need a lot. Obviously you need some dairy. So whether you have an animal or you source it from somewhere else, you just need, um, I mean, if we talk about making butter, you literally can skim cream from milk, um, or, you know, buy cream from a local farmer or what have you and put it in a mason jar with a lid and shake it. I mean, that used to be kind of like the old thing I've seen, like people give it to their kids. It does take a long time. So if you'd like to occupy your children and, um, for, for an hour or so that yeah. here, shake this jar and make butter. Um, you know, how cool though, but you also can just put it in like a blender. You can put it in a, a kitchen aid, like a, a, a mixer and, Again, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm kind of talking in circles because I'm getting so giddy because our dairy cow does come home today, but it is just like that missing link, you know? Well, and you've you've harnessed the ability of using farm fresh milk beyond edibles. I mean, people know that you make your goat milk soap. Um, but for those that might not um, see Mandy on social media outlets, uh, she has been milking her goats for a long time and making butter, making ice cream, right? Yeah. We've made a goat. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, um, 
Yeah, it, it tastes good. It is just kind of like a thing where, you know, you make the farm work for you, right? You know that I'm going to house these animals and I want them to have a purpose. And um, you get up and you do those daily chores and then you're like, hey, I have this. What do, what can I do with it? Um, and it's the same thing with like the garden. It's the same thing with like figuring out bread. It's it's yeah. all these things. It's like, hey, what what are the different ways that I can make this last, that I can use this, that I can show other people how to do it. And, um, it's incredible. Totally. Yeah. Did I say goat's milk soap? Cause I meant lotion. I, I actually don't remember. We used to make soap and then we do still like for ourselves, but yeah, lotion is lotion is what we do most, most now. And, um, the benefits of, you know, the milk for your skin, there is a reason why, you know, the old folks in like other countries take milk baths because it is that good for your skin. So I think that, uh, we have talked about so many things, right? Um, I don't know if you want to kind of touch on any type of like an infusion. I don't, um, you know, those types of things we, I know that you do, you, you infuse probably a little bit more than, than what we do. We used to a lot for soap and and stuff, but touch on what an infusion is if somebody has no idea. Yeah. So especially when you get into like homopothecary topics of conversation, you hear about infusions or tinctures. So essentially it's like steeping. You can think of it like steeping tea. I might take um, a jar and put some vodka in it, or maybe I'm working with an oil, like Mandy mentioned to use later on in soap or even just water and you're steeping it, you're marinating it, whatever you want to call it, um, herbs, fruits, um, because you're trying to extract those properties from whatever that material is and steep it and put those properties in the liquid. And later on you would strain it. So some are sun infusions, some you want to be completely in the dark. Um, these aren't necessarily just used for medicinal purposes. I mean, liquid, I mean, vodka, people infuse vodka for drinking. Um, some people make it for, um, ingestibles or salad dressings. So there's, there's all different ways to use an infusion. Um, the, the, where the line kind of blurs between infusions and tinctures, tinctures are sort of the same thing. They're steeping material, but usually not just one, it's some sort of concoction. So you might be using a mix of herbs and berries or spices or whatever. And again, you're just extracting the beneficial or healthful properties from that and pulling those, those particles into the liquid. Tinctures, more often than not, are going to be taken with certain dosage guidelines and they're taken as a, as a medication. Similar so, to like an elderberry syrup. Yes. Yeah. Elderberry syrup is just more of a quick, usually stovetop um, extraction and yeah. then discarding the berries. Yes, I was just going to bring that up. So you read my mind. I mean, again, we threw so much information at you right now. I think that a good thing or, you know, a way to kind of circle or tie this all in when you're listening to this and as you go through your day or, you know, what have you, um, when you sit down or you're not sitting down to cook, but when you go to your kitchen to cook dinner tonight, um, look at everything that you pull out of the fridge or look at everything that you pull from your pantry or your storage and think to yourself, you know, do I want to make this? Can I make this? Is there a different way for me to source this? Um, is there, is there a better way for me to, you know, pres preserve or, you know, it, 
have a more longer shelf life for, you know, X, Y, and Z. And that is a really good way to just kind of get your juices flowing. What do you use the most, um, you know, and, and figure out the best way to preserve that? What do you, what do you want to learn? What do you, what do you want to try? And if you look at exactly what you use most, what you do most often, what's going to work best for you? Do you have freezer space? Do you have, you know, storage in your, in your basement for canning and canning supplies? Uh, and I think that that is a good way to get your mindset going when it comes to food crafting, when it comes to preserving and, uh, that that's a, the best way to start. Yeah. Dinner. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what homesteading is, right? Being able to harness some um, self-reliance when it comes to your food source and your food security. Um, So yeah, again, take a look at the show notes. Lots of resources, lots of information there. Links to classes, books, Instagram accounts, um, all kinds of references there for you. I think we will definitely cover if not all of these, most of these topics in depth in future episodes. So if you're feeling like you want more info on sourdough, hold up. We got you. We're we're coming back. There'll be more episodes. Um, Today, we're just trying to sort of help show you the possibilities of what you can do beyond standard bread making, beyond dehydration in your kitchen. I think this is good. Yeah. Yeah, Just get the juices flowing and kind of know, hey, there are tons of options and y'all got this and and we got you. So thanks so much for for hanging with us and uh, we'll be back soon. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Homestead Education Podcast. Any relevant material will be put in the show notes. We hope you'll share our episodes and also click that subscribe button. For more information about this podcast, you can visit us on Instagram at Homestead Education Podcast. Angela can be found online at axeandroothomestead.com and on Instagram at axeandroothomestead. Mandy can also be found online at thefarmermandy.com and on Instagram at wildoakfarms. We'll see you next time.